Start in T minus ten seconds. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition. Ahoy there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unconstitutional Awakening. This is part two of our first lightning special where we started the other week, you know, diving deep into all this like nuclear type stuff and just weird, weird coincidences and things like that that have gone along with it. Like this week, we're going to talk about a big difference of things. But of course, I'm just going to turn it over to Neptune here in a moment. And, you know, he'll divulge into it a little deeper. So we got Ox, Paul and Neptune with us. Bandit missed out this week, but that's all right. So how's everybody doing today? Good, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. So I just figured we'd go ahead and jump on in this. Let's get it going again. What you got for us this week on it, Neptune? So, you know, last time we were here, Jimmy, we were kind of talking about, you know, the history of the of the buildup of nuclear arms. Yeah. You know, the, we were talking about the implications, you know, what that means to the world. We're, you know, kind of elaborating on how that affects society, you know, our, our long term, uh, what that would do to the world, to our supply chains, to the economy uh, on, a, on a global scale. But, you know, we really didn't talk about, you know, the, the what ifs and the, the gotchas, the, the almost the the almost happened uh those are really important because while we think of nuclear weapons in the catastrophic power that they can bring we don't really think about how close we've come to nuclear war in the past both intentionally and on accident um and in fact in how that has really affected us as a society um, you know, thinking of it in terms of like the Russian Federation, the former Soviet Union and the U.S., we, too, have the most nuclear arms of anyone else in the world combined. And that is substantial to the possibility you leave the door open for unmitigated risk. And that's that's dangerous. So I, I kind of wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, some of those, those almost scenarios. Yeah. One, 
one in particular that sticks out in my mind. Uh, it, it actually, it almost mirrors where we are today. And incidentally enough, it's not one conflict the United States was directly involved in. Uh, and of, of course, I'm talking about Suez crisis back in the, back in the fifties. Um, for those who were unaware, um, the Suez Canal has obviously been a, a big part of all supply chains in the Middle East uh, for over 100 years. And for a large number of those years, it was under the direct control of the British Empire. Uh, accordingly, uh, it was occupied for a pretty lengthy amount of time during the first half of the 20th century, uh, up to and including both uh both world wars uh was kind of used as a sort of a staging area to sort of deny uh enemy forces uh occupation of that uh, territory uh, the crisis in in particular comes really to mind for me is thinking about how badly england was willing to go to ground um to ensure that they had an open open supply chain through the Suez Canal. Uh, thinking specifically of Gamal Abdel Nasir, he was the president of uh, Egypt at the time, uh, the country most in direct control of Suez. Um, and there's a lot of arguments around. He wanted to play both ends against the middle, trying to make the U.S. and the Soviet Union fight for his fight for his. Uh, patronage uh, we almost came to to blows um, on, a, on a global scale uh, with nuclear conflict at that time and really the, the the real driving reason behind it is England was unwilling to give up uh, having military control of the canal at that time and it was disconcerting uh, both to the both to the Western powers in general. Uh, the United States really didn't want to get involved in the conflict simply from a from a standpoint that Nasir himself had come to power, and they had a they had a misguided conception that Nasir could be influenced by Western imperialism. Of course, he didn't want that. All he really wanted was was arms. He, he wanted to bolster Egypt's military arsenal. And he wanted that with the sole intention of mind of evicting England, evicting the British Empire permanently. Uh, it so much came of that conflict that it did lead to direct military in intervention by England, by France, and I believe uh, by Israel, uh, who had been presented with the majority of the blame. Uh, that in and of itself uh, presented a, a sort of I was about conflict. to say, during, during my time of looking into this, you know, building up to this, I did see there was some, you know, some Israel involvement because it was just kind of really coming out, you know, of, of being, it hadn't been around that long technically and, and it's, in its new stage right. and like it, it yeah it did actually have some direct involvement in all of this happening i believe right and it it caused uh from the united states standpoint it, it it caused kind of a internal turmoil for the eisenhower administration 
who was in power at the time, because they didn't want, even though they they wanted friendly relations with the Middle Eastern powers, in, including Saudi Arabia, uh, they didn't want to give a public perception that we were turning our back on Israel, who uh, we had uh, uplifted into a sovereign state just 10 years earlier. So it was it put the it put the U.S. on a rock in a hard place. And it, it, it came to the point of contention that the, the conflict that had the conflict had escalated to such a degree that Israel essentially agreed to the to the ground invasion of Egypt uh, for this person for the purpose of occupying the, the Suez yes. uh, on, on the on the grounds that they would have uh, support from Britain and uh, France. And uh, by the time the conflict had fully escalated, uh, the Soviets in, in their capacity, uh, Khrushchev in particular, he was having none of it. And it almost directly led to a global nuclear conflict because Khrushchev, in as few words as possible, openly said that uh, if they didn't leave the Suez, uh, and they didn't back off of Egypt, uh, they would launch their nuclear arsenal. They well, positioned and armed their, their, their nuclear capabilities to, to the full extent possible. And, and, and of course, you know, there was, well, I guess when I get into saying about the, uh, you know, like the Israel type thing is, is in my digging, I don't know, I haven't heard you say it yet, but Operation Musketeer was going on actually during this, like after, after the leader there in Egypt, you know, nationalized it, it, Operation Musketeer was Britain, France, and Israel conspiring, you know, to together to seize it by force, of course. Right. And and I, I believe that's where it, where it, you know, led into, like you said, the rock and the hard place kind of thing, because these are, these are technically like these United Nations type people that were, supposedly supposedly doing the right thing but this just seems like they were like we're, we're doing this whether you want this to happen or not right of- well, if i might interject here guys i mean this is just another example of classical british imperialism you know if we if we call a spade a spade here they did not want control wrested from them of the suez canal because you know the saying goes the sun never sets on the british empire right and for a long time, that was the truth, and you couldn't deny it. Uh, you know, and at that point in time, after World War II had ended, England wasn't as big a player on the world stage as they once were. So because of that, seizing a trade route the size of the Suez Canal with the significance of the Suez Canal was extremely pivotal at that time, in, at least to them, uh, regarding their economy and their economic status in the world forum. I agree a hundred percent. And, and yeah, Jimmy, to your point, uh, Musketeer was designed with that thought in mind. Nasir had in mind to, uh, to, to nationalize control of the canal. And now granted, and in the end of the conflict, yes, Suez Canal remained open. And as far as uh, economic uh, sustainability across the world is concerned, but obviously, England being unwilling to to wrest that control uh, 
it, it definitely marked a pivotal point in 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 creating um, that animosity, it, especially between it, it worsened relations in in my opinion between Egypt and and in England in particular, because Nasir had his hard line. He wanted England out of the Middle East, which in my personal view, I understand. I, I, I get that. Um, strategically, that to, to that end, I, I do feel like that did put the, the U.S. in that rock-in-a-hard-place sort of scenario because when it came to blows, when it finally came to the Soviet Union electing to intervene on behalf of Egypt, um, and, and placing that ultimatum that you need to leave. Uh, it, it was really more of the fact that we didn't want to sour our own relations with blooming Arab nations uh, just to make nice with our, you know, with our NATO allies, because there was also the, the point of what if the Soviet Union had pulled the trigger? Much like we were in today. If they had pulled the trigger and launched nukes, or even if it were just a de-escalated conflict, if France or England had been attacked, it would have indemnified the U.S. to respond, which, of course, the U.S. didn't want. So it, it, it kind of put them in, in that position that they, they wanted to back down the escalation of the conflict before it became potential nuclear Armageddon because it would have it would have directly led to World War III and the world had torn itself apart twice inside of 40 years. I mean, so at this point we're 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 10 years removed from World War II. We're we're 40 years back from the end of the second of the first world war. So that was of least possibility on anyone's mind. Anything we could have done to avoid global nuclear conflict at that time i think anyone in 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 reasonably so uh in in their right mind wanted to avoid so yeah musketeer you know the provocation by by england and by france and by israel uh, whether or not israel is directly responsible for that i i i leave that up to the viewer to decide sure sure uh, it is definitely it would not have been fortuitous on a, on a global stage. Of course. Uh, the, the, the world landscape today uh, would not be the same as it, as it is right now. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. So, and then, I mean, and so of course, you know, there's, I guess there's other, you know, this isn't the only time situations like this have happened in history. And, you know, of course that's why we're here today. We're talking about some of these other ones. I, in my notes over here, I see where we've got, one that I guess is kind of close to me and you that we could kind of talk about this, this, this Tybee Island bomb. Yeah. Um, man, I didn't uh, even know. I didn't, I didn't even know about that one until earlier recently. this year until very recently. Um, so two and two of my mind really stick out uh, from a, from the continental United States standpoint of view. There's a lot to be said about our own malfeasance and mishandling of, of nuclear weapons. But the two that really stick out to me are very, very close to the chest for Jimmy and myself because 
both of them had the implications of changing the shape of the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Southeast, particularly, where you guys – I mean, one was yeah. in Carolinas, correct? And the other one was in Georgia area? Yeah. So uh, the Tybee Island incident uh, is actually down here near Savannah, where, where I live. And uh, the, the circumstances of which was there was a – there was a, a mid-air, uh, a combat simulation mission. Uh, at, at that point, uh, a plane, I think it was a C-47, out of uh, out of Florida, was meeting up with an F-56. And uh, I forget the exact circumstances of what led to the mid-air collision. But essentially what happened is the, the, the fighter plane, uh, he made direct contact with the C-47. Um, essentially, the the pilot of the fighter plane, he punched out. Um, he survived. There were no casualties during this exercise, thank God. But the C-47 uh, uh -oh. be began losing altitude uh, very rapidly, as a matter of fact. And uh, an emergency decision had been made uh, that – to, to try to keep it in the air long enough to make it to Hunter Army Airfield, which is uh, just around the corner from where I live, they would uh, drop their payload. And that, in, as it happens, that happens to include what is believed now to have been an uh, inert uh, warhead, but was still carrying a, I think it was a W-3 warhead. Uh, or at least uh, the shell of one. At any rate, they dropped that bomb in the water uh, over the uh, the Skidaway Sound, you know, which is in between Skidaway and Tybee Island in uh, southeastern Georgia. You know, and I'm sorry that I'm laughing here because I guess, you know, technically it isn't a laughing matter, but at the same time, it just makes me think about all those people that are like, well, only government should have nuclear weapons. Uh, my lord no you're absolutely right and the thing that really scares the hell out of me about this whole scenario and it really kind of ties into the other one we're going to talk about here in a few minutes yeah. is it's the reality that they cannot find this thing it is it went into the water that much they knew it did not explode right <laughs> but they don't know where exactly it fell um and the belief Can I throw in my two cents on this real quick i, I do know some statistics on this so uh the, the official government file on this was declassified in 94 uh the year that i was born the year that i believe uh the year that i believe paul was born as well but uh so they declassified this in 94 and the craziest part about it is that they estimate that it's either a buried under about 15 feet of silt at this point or that a russian submarine had recovered it because they'd been doing a fair amount of recon in that general area and wanted to study it so they may have recovered it which is why it did not explode however this declassification also revealed something rather terrifying uh, it was completely armed. It was good to go. It was. It could have blown if triggered. 
So all that's of that scary. is just is batshit crazy. Well, that's scary. That part I did not know about because that's actually identical to the scenario we're going to talk about in a minute. That's terrifying. Uh, you know, the fact that that bomb was armed and ready to go and the fact that they can't find this thing. And those and two I'm, things don't sit well with me. And like, and like, I know every everybody and everything in history because it's just a run to automatically goes to oh, maybe a Russian sub recovered it. And I think, and I'm gonna be honest, I think that's just them just covering their ass, being like, oh well, we just we can't find it. Maybe they maybe they got it. Like it's always they always gotta blame somebody else. So like, well, it's I really, easier than saying you're Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's easier than say, you know, it's easier than saying no. We're just a bunch of dumbasses. Yeah. A couple Air Force guys have went looking for that bomb over the years, have come up short uh, as it happens. Uh, but for anyone who is ever curious, if you want to see the the sign of where it was suspectedly dropped, it's at the it's at the bottom of the Bull River, somewhere right at the uh, at the at the mouth, right where it dumps into the dumps into the Atlantic. <laughs> so. Uh, no river floats. No river floats there, guys. Let's stay away from that area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. Oh, but uh, that does bring that does bring up an excellent point. I mean, it's not the first time that we've ever had you know these what ifs, and definitely wasn't going to be the last. But only a couple years later, unfortunately, uh, a couple hundred miles north of Tybee. The very same thing happened all over again. Um, so, Eastern North Carolina is pretty big, and it's home to a lot of people. It's also home to a lot of farmland. If you get anything that says that it was grown in North Carolina, chances are it was grown in Eastern NC. Uh, anyway, that happens to be the home of a pretty big Air Force garrison. Uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. And uh, at any rate, uh, 1961, I believe it was. Uh, Jimmy, keep me honest on this one. It was a B-52G. Uh, it was a Stratofortress. It was conducting an aerial refueling exercise at that time. Anyway, uh, there was major uh, catastrophic damage uh, done uh during the flight ceiling, uh, the plane started coming apart. Uh, there have been multiple improvements to the B-52 line of planes over the years for this exact reason. Uh, the plane started coming apart about 11 miles north. Uh, and I forget the name of the town where it actually crash landed. But at any rate, they actually had uh, two thermobaric nuclear warheads on board. Uh, those warheads uh, were carrying the payload equivalent of a bomb 260 times uh, the yield of the bombs dropped on Japan in 1945. That is fucking terrifying. And I, I mean, I don't mean to laugh at this, but it's like, Okay. Why? Just why? The, but the, the thing that terrifies me the most about this uh, is not actually the fact that 
So on one of the bombs, one they recovered, in fact, <clears throat> they found that there are four arming switches on board. Three of the four have been activated. Only the arm safe switch had not been activated and is the only reason the nuke did not go off. That might seem like the most terrifying thing about this conversation, and yet, uh, so two of these hit the earth. They recovered that one. They The EODs were <laughs> able to fully recover that one. Unfortunately, the, the nuclear core, the shiny ball inside of these bombs and these thermobaric warheads carry two of them. One of those two nuclear cores uh, on one of the bombs that had not been recovered uh, is somewhere lodged in the earth and it has not been recovered to this day. The EUDs cannot find it. They don't know where it is. They, now, granted, there is a caveat. I don't know if it could actually achieve fission in and of itself, but imagine, if you will, someone digging up a shiny shiny silver ball just sounds a lot more terrifying when you think about it when you say it out loud and that's the and and that's the b-52 crash right and yeah and uh, goldsboro yeah that was the 196 i think it was 61 uh the goldsboro b-52 crash yeah i think it was 62 possibly yeah I don't know. no no no. here i i i, I I was making sure because I wanted to pull it up because like this is there this is recent enough that there is actually like photographic oh. evidence of this. Uh, and like you you know you you see that they had like hazmat team type stuff out there because they were literally searching for nuclear weapons. He's not kidding here. Like this was this was a big deal in the town. And here's they did have photos of the one that they found. Yep. And it's, it was a mess like that. There's there's a there's some pretty good reads on this, not just on Wikipedia, but kind of everywhere else. Like this is he's right, too, about the B-52s and the crashes. Like that's also something that was a common. Yeah. Thing. And there it is right there where Jimmy's oh, at right now. That's it. This that, right here. that is the one that was fully recovered. It's parachute had deployed. Thank God. And it. Came uh, came down to the earth, but yeah, the only reason it did not go off is its safe arm switch had not activated. And and you know, for for folks out there that can only hear us and not see us, like you know, you can you can definitely pull this stuff up. All you got to do is throw in the Goldsboro B fifty two crash, and I'll I'll try to have a few links to some good stuff for you guys to check out in the in the comments and such down there for you. So you know, make sure you. Can, you look for this if you want to learn more about these about these things. So, and again, these uh these incidents, of course, aren't uh you know aren't uncommon. Like I think I've got one more over here in my notes to talk about. It was that uh the the B, the USS Beale incident. Yeah, I'd like to actually talk a few minutes about that. Uh, this one was actually a request from Bandit, in fact, and it's substantial. So it's it predates. Um, a, a lot of more common, uh, a, a lot more recent incidents, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it predates the, uh, I don't think it exactly predates the Bay of Pigs invasion. I think that was 1961. I believe this incident occurred in late 62. Um, so anyways, 
there were a uh, there were a flotilla of submarines that had been deployed to Cuba. Uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah it was mid it was fall of 1962. In fact, well, uh, one of them got separated from the others. And it had went without radio contact for several days. Um, so the way it worked out was the flotilla commander was actually on board this vessel. Soviet protocol from what has been publicly available to us is that in the event of a nuclear response, traditionally only to need to provide fire execute authority. That is the submarine captain and the fire control officer. In the case of the Soviet B-59 sub, the flotilla commander himself was actually on board. And in fact, he is the only person that averted that conflict from actually uh, exploding. So a little background here. Um, these submarines had navigated toward Florida. They were in international waters at the time but um the the precipice of the incident was that they had been spotted on on sonar by uh by uh the uss beale and a uh, number of other uh american uh frigates so essentially what had happened was uh the b-59 was stranded it was on its own and it was without radio contact from its high command <clears throat> with no other re with no other way to actually force a response out of the sub, the the U.S. I think it was the Beal. They began dropping uh, dummy charges in the water. Um, it led the the submarine to initially believe they were already under attack, and it also led them to believe that uh, they were already at war. Uh, so this particular uh, flotilla captain or chief, I cannot remember his name right this moment for the life of me. Uh, he had overruled both the sub captain and fire officer on board uh, in order to force them to surface. Uh, the USS uh, Beale had requested them identify themselves and had no alternative means of doing so other than drop charges and force them to force on the surface and after they had hid for a number of days uh, their batteries ran low and air conditioning started to fail so in either case they had returned to to the soviet union after that conflict but the only thing that averted nuclear war in 1962 was that the flotilla chief on board that vessel is the only man who was willing to stand against the others and say, do not fire this nuclear torpedo because we almost, they almost triggered a full response from the United States Navy. And in doing so had a, had a Navy ship come under attack. Uh, that is an almost guaranteed declaration of war. Absolutely. <clears throat> And, uh, and he actually, this uh, this flotilla chief was, or captain, sorry, uh, was supposed to receive uh, commendation for averting this potential nuclear war. And instead, 
in true Russian fashion, they went, you made our scientists and other military professionals look bad and never received any semblance of commendation, essentially retiring in obscurity because he was just so done with all of it. If, if that part is true, that's actually exactly like what happened in about 20 years later. The, we would basically repeat this exercise, unfortunately. Uh, I'd like to get to that a little bit later, but that's yeah. that's almost the, the Soviet Union repeating itself in glorified fashion. That's that's sad. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, Paul, did I miss anything? Do you have anything to add? No, this is all just good history. It's 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 interesting. Um, no, it, it it's it just reminds me a lot of how um, a lot of historical events can be chalked up to incompetence, where you've got um, just a lot of people in the midst of these things, um, just having very minor things going wrong that escalate very quickly into pretty catastrophic events so, or that so, minor break or that minor breakdowns in communication result in right. the stakes being escalated to 11. I agree. Which, which actually, which actually rolls right into something else that we, you know, we've got here. We could talk about is when, when a solar flare led to a false alarm that, you know, was getting ready to send Soviets out to attack because they, Oh my, Oh my God. Yeah, I almost completely forgot about that. Thank you ah, for reminding me. You're uh, yeah, thanks for keeping yeah. us on track. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so when was this? Was it 67? 67, yeah, okay. Uh, I do <laughs> seem to remember. So there was a mass nuclear, uh, mass neutrino injection that had happened, uh, yeah, sometime in 67. And uh, as anyone who's familiar with you know neutrinos and mass injections are are aware that can cause electronic interference it can cause you know in the modern day that can cause you know your internet to go out cause your cell phones to go down it can cause you know tv it, it can cause any manner of radio frequency to just go and you're out <clears throat> Apparently, this was a problem for the Soviets who were ill-equipped for that uh, at the time. And, I mean, I won't fault them for it. Our understanding of, you know, solar flares in a general sense is still fairly new. I, and I actually will share this link with everybody else that's out there that uh, is listening and watching that I'm sharing right now. This is a link actually about this situation where I actually read a little more in depth about it. But go ahead and continue. Yeah, so what had happened was that this this mass solar ejection had happened uh, in 67, and essentially what it had built May 23rd, up to, to be exact. May 23rd? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, so, yeah, they're coming up on the date that actually happened. So, at any rate, this happened, and this, this set off uh, – Soviet uh, immediate response alarms. They have in in the in the former in the former Soviet Union. Now they have the nuclear deterrence force. Uh, in the past, this had been known as what they called the dead hand protocol. And uh, in not so many words, 
it appears that this solar flare that had uh, gone off had actually triggered all of their uh, nuclear response alarms uh, to trigger in, in succession. And uh, it sent the Kremlin into a panic. They thought that they were under attack by the United States. And incidentally, of course, that had not happened uh, the, the, at the time the, the U.S. was completely em, embroiled in the, in the Vietnam War. They had no interest in going to war with the with Soviet Union. Uh, the stand-down order had been issued, and they had declared that it had been uh, a, a calibration error in their, in their machine hardware. But uh, again, that it also brings into light that uh, no matter how how far you advance, uh, human reasoning uh, will always be uh, computer logic. Because if it had been left to the response of their instruments, uh, the world might not be the same today. Well, and I mean, and then, and then with that, almost 20 years later, we had another Soviet false alarm, mm -hmm. which of course was, you know, as an, as another one that, that bandit had brought up that, want, you know, he wanted to, we did, made mention we did. Of and stuff. Yeah. so, you know, like um, that was, that was, that was like a lot of the same kind of stuff though, as far yeah. as false alarm wise. Right. And, and it really was so Soviet sensors uh, at the uh, at, at wherever their their nuclear silos were housed, their their central command had gotten a false alert of I believe it was five ICBMs had been launched, and thanks to the uh, thanks to the work of one lieutenant colonel who was bold enough to not issue the response. Uh, nuclear war had been totally averted. Um, I forget his name. Stop, but Stan, 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 uh, Stanislav Ertrov is what I've got. Uh, thank you, Jimmy. I, I'm yep. not probably saying it wrong. I'm probably butchering the hell out of it. But like, I apologize. Y'all can you can look this up directly again as the you know 1983 Soviet nuclear false alarm like that it'll stuff will pop right up and you can read all this with your own eyes because i am terrible at pronouncing things yeah so, you're not a spy <laughs> yeah i i do remember well that just as bad i do remember well in his initial report that he wrote that were an attack from the americans going to be imminent that it would have been more substantial yeah. He he did not believe that he he believed something was amiss. He didn't think that five missiles uh, was cate uh, categorical of an uh, an American first strike. Uh, it didn't seem reasonable to him, and and so accordingly, he did not he did not authorize the order to move forward with the launch. Yeah, you know that big question here. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jimmy, but. That begs the question here, I think, if we were, because if we study history, I mean, look, government's inept in a lot of cases, but it's not full of idiots. Yes, it is. But there are some smart people in it. And strategically, if we look at that kind of history and we say they won't respond if it just says five ICBMs, right? Would we or another nation have the ball 
to launch only five ICBMs and go, they'll write it off as just some sort of technological malfunction and bring that country to their knees because we only launch what's considered a nominal amount. This is kind of the worry. This is kind of the worry in Ukraine right now. Um, right. As the I mean, more. we've been here before. That's kind of where we're going with this, isn't it? I mean, right. We've seen this in the past. Yeah. It's it's that, it, uh, that the idea that as the situation gets more desperate for Russia, let's say they only launch one, right? Is 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 a global nuclear war worth it over Russia using just one nuke at this point? Where we're at a point where right it, no one no one wants to use any um and and you could even argue that even if they dropped one um the united states and and the united kingdom and france might still say eh, it's still not worth it it's only one <laughs> so uh, i mean yeah it's, it, it's a very weird spot it, it does seem to be a weird spot which <clears throat> which i guess you know could could be why things like you know why maybe because i know they do like military experiments and stuff but i feel like this is why maybe they did like able archer like as far as like you know like you know like testing this of course that was a that was a big ass mess too though if you if you really get into it because that was supposed to be a simulation but then i know i know Neptune wants to talk about this, but Able Archer just turned. They had world military and political leaders involved in Able Archer as well to simulate the the reality of it. Right. All of this kind of comes full circle now, right? I mean, we're at, we're at the we're at the real culmination of of why all this was important because you have leaders, you have political leaders, you have military leaders, you have military personnel ready to carry out these exercises on these what-if scenarios. Able Archer in particular of 83 was probably, I, I feel like more than the Bay of Pigs invasion, I feel like Able Archer put us closer to midnight than even that did. Now, some people would probably disagree with me, and, and that's a fair assessment, but let me let me kind of Paint the picture here. Able Archer, it's a it's a yearly exercise where they simulate the conditions of what would necessitate a military conflict. It is for the purpose of NATO, it's how we are prepared for you know military response. And in in theory, I, I think it's great. It makes sure that we're always on our toes, always alert, always vigilant. And, uh, Paul, please forgive me for that because that sounds cheesy as hell now that I say it out loud. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, we do these exercises and we do it with a thought in mind that we have to be prepared ourselves to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, right? So, Able Archer 83, we are three weeks removed from the event uh, previously mentioned uh, where we had, uh, where, the, where the Soviets had inadvertently shot down, I think it was, uh, it was a Korean airliner. We're probably about a week apart from the, uh, 
from the the situation where the Soviets thought they were going to have to just launch full out nuclear arsenal. The the Soviets are in very distaste of the United States at this point. There is an inherent distrust and the the spy games are real. Abel Archer 83 is now at a point that the US has advanced um, to a point that they have they've made a lot of spies and in doing so uh, they've also been able to successfully deceive uh, spies and that goes that does go both ways but in keeping with that the US had adopted new communication protocols uh, that were unfamiliar to the Soviet Union. Uh, they had illustrated these exercises in such a way that um, they would be prepared to respond. And given the troop movement uh, into uh, Western Germany and uh, West Berlin, that it, it almost gave the Soviets the impression that this was not a this was not a, a practice exercise it was it was real uh, kind of where that leaves us really is the at that time uh, the Soviet Union was on higher alert than it had ever been in its in entire life they had notified each German uh, each German troops to be ready to, to blockade the border they had put their troops in Poland on high alert. As far as I see it, when comparing those circumstances with where we stand today, with, as Paul said, with Ukraine, I feel like that is the closest we have ever been to outright nuclear conflict that we might ever be. And the reason I say that is it is a inherent mistrust that goes back to our, our previous episode where I kind of talked about that this this hatred between Russians and uh, Americans, it's almost inborn. Do you think we, that the... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Was that? No, go ahead. Do, do you think that the the Cuban Missile Crisis was, was probably the, the actual closest anyone has ever come to hitting the big red button at, at each other? I or that, or that some of these events uh, surpass that. I put it at number two, and I only put it behind Abel Archer 83 only because we had been able to more realistically de-escalate that conflict with communication than Abel Archer 83 only because it sent the Soviet Union into an outright panic. So, I mean, I, again, I, I think this is probably left to probably an individual interpretation. I mean, the Bay of Pigs invasion was very serious, and it did bring us very close to, to nuclear arm again. I agree. But Abel Archer 83, the, the troop movements, and really the fact that the Soviets now had a blind spot. They, they, they simply lost their, their previous capability to to really spy on American communications, uh, the, the new format in which we were communicating uh, operationally for these exercises, it, it threw the Soviets for a loop, right? 
so it goes back to a human condition of sorts that um, on both sides there were probably ready people more than more than able to push the red button. So I, I, I only weigh Able Archer, Able Archer 83 higher for that reason, that it, it had been a more brewing of, of distrust that I, I feel like had not some of leaders on, on, both, on both the side of the United States and on the side of the Soviet Union had not come together to, to shake hands. Uh, would things have gone infinitely worse than they did? Uh, I feel like, especially even leading up to Afghanistan, uh, for the Soviets, their their last big military conflict before the, the Soviet collapse. Uh, I feel like things could have went a lot differently had had our leaders not come together uh, as they did. And the, not to totally. Not to totally side, side rail this, but but it's interesting in that in spite of the in spite of the incompetence, in spite of the the kind of crazy situations that that are, that arise from from dealing with nuclear devices, the entire time we're talking about this, we're dealing with a it, it kind of goes without saying, but we're, we're dealing with people that are acting fairly rationally given their circumstance. Right, we're, we're dealing with people that don't want to die <laughs> right we're, we're dealing with people that 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 ge genuinely don't want this um that do not want nuclear war um i th i think even in the cuban missile crisis i i think it came down to a, s a single russian sub commander who did not have communication with the outside world that that had to make the call on whether or not they were going to attack the united states and ultimately they opted not to um no, no one actually wants this, so it's it's just interesting when we talk about nuclear when we talk about nuclear conflict. It should go without saying that we're we're dealing with rational people, um, but at in certain parts of the world we're not. Um, in certain right. parts, specific, specifically in the Middle East, um, where you have much more of a prevalence of death cults, um, the topic of nuclear armaments gets much more tricky because you're dealing with people that are not trying to preserve the well-being of their country. They're not trying to preserve, uh, the, the, they don't fear uh, a, a nuclear annihilation the, the way that e e even, even Russia, for all their faults, they still don't want to see Moscow get turned to glass. So it's, I, I only bring this up just because it's, it's, it's kind of implicit behind all of these that everyone in all of these situations it, it in spite of incompetence they're all acting rationally no, no, no one wants these things to escalate yeah it, and in thinking of it from a uh, a perception of one of one or two men thinking normally or thinking with reason versus a versus a conglomerate of people right who might just be screaming for blood or just a, a host of politicians who, who think that war is, uh, war is our best option. So, yeah, it, I, I agree. It always comes down to one or two men to think reasonably 
and and that's that's the I think that's the the, the entire history of of nuclear armaments is that's always been what's averted war. It's always come down to just one guy. Well, and and then I and then I you know I mean I guess I guess you know in 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 a sense after so many things had had happened and stuff this there it did lead into sort of a uh, you know we we had brought this up in our in our chat or whatever like the, the these last few things like the like the archer 83 and stuff or the able archer 83 or whatever like it, it was part of the contributing factors that led to the start ratifications Crap, we lost it. Yeah. No, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. You're good. The, with, no. I, with, I agree. With, yeah. I I agree that that's that's how those decisions have 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 come to be is especially thinking about all of the the fear around nuclear buildup. You know that that TV movie the day after came out in like 1980. To 1983 or 84, whenever it was, that and Red Dawn, there was a lot of fear around nuclear Armageddon. Sure. In 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 those days, sure. and uh, I I think contributing factors like that, you know, and, and pressure from the public that you know we don't want to die, like Paul said. That I mean people don't want to, people don't want to throw away their own lives just for the sake of destroying an, an enemy and in, in the in the pursuit of peace uh, and there's a part I, of me that oh go, go ahead I, I i the only thing i was going to say is i i do think that that um uh, that at, in and of itself that's led us up with a fair shake toward uh toward obviously uh to to reagan you know the soviet union uh, attempting to to make peace to, despite these circumstances, especially with star trees. Go ahead, Paul. I'm sorry. Oh no, you're good. It, it, it it's, it kind of makes me, me wonder. Um, Cause right. You think back to the, you think back to the cold war era um, when people were genuinely terrified of, of nuclear warfare. And it, it feels like the current, the current generation, um, of folks that you know people people my age nuclear warfare we we understand at a logical level that's not that that nuclear warfare is to be avoided but we don't understand it at kind of a a a a pragmatic level why why it's so scary um because because it's it's not it's not real you know it's for, for all intents and purposes it's not on the table and so it's led to kind of a very laxed mindset where people don't really understand what the stakes are, where it, 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 you get you almost get the sense looking at at at, at politicians interacting with each other for, from the U.S. And, and Russia, that there is no circumstances where these people can shoot at each other. You'll never see. U.S. soldiers and Russian soldiers ex- ex- exchanging gunfire because of the it's just not going to happen they're, they're, they're going to nuke each other and it feels like that that sense has been lost nowadays where, where people have forgotten that we you can't have you can't have u.s troops shoot at shoot at russians and vice versa 
um yeah that 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 cold war scare of we cannot 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 shoot at these people and they, and they can't do the same which, it kind of feels which, like culturally which, that's been lost which which and yeah. i and i actually you know i I, under, I actually do understand you know what you're saying as far as that 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 thought of it and such and and i actually agree you know like i'm not i'm not disagreeing at all which is which has just kind of led me to some neat stuff, you know, because again, I don't know if I'm articulating talking, it uh, well enough. I, I do. I do understand what you're saying because I'm saying though, like I've, I've, I've led it. It's led me to, it's led me down some interesting conspiracy holes. Cause you know, again, I'm somebody that don't read anything. I don't care what it is. I want to read it. And like, there's, there's some good conspiracy holes that, you know, something we brought up in the last episode and that i see kind of going in here and i see with what you're talking about at the end of the day most of it is a giant dick swinging contest and 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 they're both saying that you know oh we're we could but nobody really wants to so it brings me to around to what like how big of a bluff is some of this like, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, like, cause, because people are just throwing around, trying to throw around their power and like, in reality, how, you know, who we get it. One side's got more than the other, maybe so this side or yeah. one side doesn't care. They'll, they'll do it. But at the end of the day, like you're saying, they're not really going to do it. So how much of this is a bluff? Like, how much, bluff, how, much how many times do you need to bluff or how big of a bluff does yeah, it need to be before yeah. somebody calls it? Yeah, like I just yeah. I don't it's it just it's been so many years and there's been so many of these bluffs. Me personally, I'm starting to wonder like I don't want it to happen, but fuck, if somebody's going to do it, we all just going to get it over with instead of just throwing it back and forth cuz this has been going on we're going on what 80 years now that we've been threatening back and forth with this and it's 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 to me it's the same old game because it, to me, it's I'm looking at history repeat itself because we've already seen this stuff, and even some of the stories we talked about today were history repeating themselves in a quick nature, and like, and then here we are again today in Ukraine, and like, it just, it's just, I, it, it's the same story, and I just don't understand why. If I'm the only one that sees it, it's the same story, or if like, I, there's something wrong with that. Like, there's something wrong. I, with that. My, my my closing thoughts on this, and I'd like to spend our our next episode talking more about, you know, kind of what I feel like are the the real points of, you know, where we are right now. Sure. Talking about the star trees and stuff, I'd like to spend some more time on that uh, next time. But uh, my closing thoughts on that is uh, for think something to think about is for how long uh, can people continue to be or act with reason is I think that's the, the real question. I mean, uh, can there be one or two people who act with reason to, to come out of a, of any scenario that may otherwise lead us down a, a point of, total annihilation that's a question i leave with kind of piggyback off of that i also would like to interject so uh if these viewers don't know yet maybe this is the first episode they're tuning into but my mother uh fled the ussr and came to america under the carter administration um 
a lot of her friends and I basically grew up calling them anti this and anti that, you know, um, <clears throat> a lot of them are from Russia or Ukraine. It was all the USSR at that time when she fled. And so I know a lot of Ukrainian people who identify as Russian, you know, ethnically, they may be Ukrainian, but the reality is Slavs are Slavs. Genetically, there really is very little difference, you know, and linguistically, there's a there's a touch difference, but it's the culture is almost identical. The reality is when all of this stuff started happening, they came out. You know, I'm seeing Facebook posts by them about, you know, I've I've always called myself a Russian. Technically, I'm Ukrainian, but I've always called myself a Russian. So with this conflict, blah, blah, blah. And they give their two cents. And the reality is, I wonder if there are any Russians in a military position to do something like drop a nuke that have that same sentiment that go, we're all the same. At the end of the day, you know, they might have been born in a country that was the same country as Ukraine at that time. You know, it was all the USSR. And they might go, I'm not going to kill tons of innocent men, women, and children by dropping a nuke on these people who live the same lifestyle as, you know, me and my neighbors. And at the end of the day, they want the same thing. So I think that there may be a case where, you know, you're right, Neptune, where they interject a little bit of logic into it. And it's not just about winning the stupid fucking game, you know? And, and on the other side of that coin, if they do just drop a nuke, just one, just one little baby nuke to completely fuck up Ukraine, right? Do, do we let it slide? Does the UN let it slide? Does NATO let it slide? There are a lot of people that might just go, as long as it doesn't get worse than one nuke, it's fine. I mean, who did anything about us dropping nukes on Japan, right? Now, I know that the world was not in the position to really take on a nuclear power at that point. But is it going to be any different if that does happen? That is the difference, though, yeah. is yeah. that no one was in a position to really do anything about it, where now people are. Yeah. Now people are, but are we going to? <clears throat> which, which you know, which there's, there's that. These are these are all great questions, and I think, and I do encourage everybody else out there, you know, to, you know, research into all this stuff we've talked about here today. And Paul, you got anything else you'd like to add in before we get ready to close out here? No, the, um, no, Neptune. This was awesome. This this uh, this was great. It, it I'm, very. I'm, I'm I'm really enjoying this series, and it, it might have one. It might have two more episodes left. But of course, we'll you'll you'll be the first to know out there, folks listening and watching and such. Um. I appreciate all you guys making time for us on this Sunday afternoon and you know, everybody out there, make sure you check out our sponsors, make sure out on the website, you look for our new merch store. Um, y'all keep listening. Y'all keep watching. We appreciate you guys that are out there supporting us. That's the only reason we're going to keep this going. You know, um, I appreciate you guys out here and sharing all this great information, all the links of some links about some of the stuff we've talked about today will be with these episodes and everybody out there. Y'all, have a great day, and we'll see you all next time on Unconstitutional Awakening. Uh...